Any questions from you? Anything you're worried about, concerned about? Uh, no, I trust you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, <laughs> Should cool. I be worried about something? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Translation. I'm your host, Seth Bannon, a founding partner at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Translation is the process of turning basic scientific research into therapies that cure disease, new sources of energy that heal the planet, and other things that move the world forward. This podcast takes a deep dive into scientific achievements with huge potential to improve society. We talk directly with the people advancing the science with their own hands and minds, and focus on how we can translate the science from the bench to the benefit of all. Welcome to Translation. Behind every success, there are people with the courage to try, try. sources of energy to fix the carbon in our atmosphere to cure disease hey everyone it's michael chavez fellow at 50 years graduate student at stanford university and co-host of translation today i am joined by a special host alex tang chief of staff at 50 years and we'll be talking with the co-founder and ceo of resistance bio nick goldner evolution is happening even at the cellular scale whether it's a virus, a bacterial pathogen, or a cancer cell, disease-causing agents are responding to the therapies we throw at them, updating their genes and molecular pathways to resist death. As a trained microbiologist, Nick and his co-founder Chris spent their years in grad school using omics data to overcome antibiotic resistance in bacteria, which led to their first company, Viocera. As they struggled with the harsh realities of the antibiotics market, they stumbled upon the connection between bacterial and cancer resistance mechanisms. With this, they started Resistance Bio, which combines sophisticated tumoroids, intense patient sampling, and multi-omics to mimic the evolution of real tumors and ultimately find therapies that are irresistible. Well, hey, Nick, thanks so much for joining us on Translation. Before we get into the amazing work that you do, I'd love to hear what got you interested in science in the first place? Yeah, so I, I actually had Crohn's disease when I was growing up. I was about 13 years old and I was diagnosed. And it was just really hard to get the final diagnosis. I actually lost like 35 pounds. I went from being like, you know, Whoa. a four season athlete to like whenever I would stand up, I, I actually like couldn't see because I didn't have enough blood. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it like sudden onset or like? Yeah, it, it, it happened over the course of about nine months. And I just like, just would not, could not gain weight, could not like eat, couldn't do anything. And it was, you know, it was really tough. And like the doctors were like, no, it's probably you know, something else, you know, your, your throat hurts because you had like a cold the other day. It's like, no, <laughs> no, I don't think, I don't think that's what it is. And it, and it took just forever to get, you know, actually diagnosed and, and then, you know, treated. And what I learned during that process was that there's just a lot of room for improvement with these complicated diseases. And then over the course of my, you know, tenure with Crohn's, I've actually been on like several drugs because over time, a lot of these autoimmune therapies stop working. They be, you know, you become resistant to the actual therapy. And as a result of a lot of these autoimmune disease therapeutics, you also have an increased risk of infection. And so being an athlete and doing all the tackling and just risky behavior outdoors, you know, it's, it's easy to get cuts. It's easy to get infections. And I actually got a MRSA infection in my arm. I was Whoa, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, how old were you? I was in college. Uh, so I was about 20. And I had just like taken a micro class. And so like I like knew 
enough <laughs> about what was going on and uh <laughs> like the first two drugs failed and i'm like i don't know what's like this is not uh, good <laughs> no yeah are you like in a hospital at that point or no 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 i mean so like this was like a slower infection what had happened was the sutures were left in and they didn't dissolve and so the bacteria were basically hiding in the sutures and so the antibiotics would clear the infection but they wouldn't actually get to the sutures uh. and so there's like this reserve and so like i i had like five or six different antibiotics i think it one at, at, at the final problem at, you know at the end of it i think i had about seven different antibiotics because i got in a c diff infection as a result of oh all the drugs God. that i was like wow. so like crohn's and then like the infection and it, it, was, it was rough and then they had to like surgically remove everything and it was yeah. like surgically removed like literally like they, they, they took like, a chunk out of your body yeah yeah and like they wow. removed the sutures they did all that other stuff and thankfully it didn't come back but like honestly like I wake up and I'm like checking it sometimes because like, you know, yeah, you have yeah. a dream wow. and it's like, for sure, the trauma, know? right? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it would just pop back up for like no reason. You're like, oh, it's gone. And then it's back and you're like, am I going to die? <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this going to take over my entire body? And, and like, you know, that's like a like a, an actual problem for like a lot of people with implants. And so that actually led me to to start, you know, focusing on bacteria as my uh, like PhD uh, work and really trying to understand resistance in general. I, I was interested in, you know, different diseases and how they became resistant to different therapies. <laughs> I had an experience with stem cell biology and I had sucked up a cell pellet that took me like six months to, to like culture. <laughs> and I was like, I'm doing bacteria for my PhD. It's quick. It's, easy. Um, it's yeah. a great model organism. <laughs> and, and, and so it was really this, like this MRSA infection when you were 20 that, that really made you decide to go back to grad school. Is that, is that sort of why you joined what some have described as indentured servitude for six or more years of your life. <laughs> so, so I mean, my personal experience has definitely had a role to, you know, to play in this, but uh, also my, my extended family really, really helped with this. So one of the women that I met through, th through Boy Scouts was a woman named Sonia Glissick. She recently passed away from metastatic breast cancer this, this year. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, I mean, it's, she was the first person that really gave me the opportunity to be a scientist. Mm. I was kind of scared of cancer from like, uh, uh, just learning about it. It just seemed really complicated not very, you know, intuitive. Like there'd been so many people working on this problem for such a long time. I just didn't think that I, I was capable of like playing in that field. And she really was like, no, like this is, this is something that you can do. And so about a year before she passed away, we had kind of talked about, you know, her experiences and what we were doing. And, you know, it just felt like the right problem to solve. Going back to grad school though, what research did you do in grad school? So I, I was really interested in understanding treatment resistance and I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. And so we were working with this one drug, daptomycin, and it had been known that, you know, there were some resistance problems associated with it, but the target of this drug really wasn't really well characterized. And so I was like, you know, the company that, you know, made this drug just got acquired for like $10 billion. They didn't know what the target was. Like, I'm going to figure this out, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so there's this population of patients that were getting these infections and Carinobacterium striatum. And these infections were, were, weren't very well like characterized or understood. And they would go from being susceptible to these treatments to resistant in the course of like 24 hours, which Whoa. is just like Holy crazy crap. fast, wow. right? And like the amount of drug that you would need to give to these bacteria in order to like get it to work, like you'd kill the patient. Like it was mm. just like non-functional. Non and so what we had was this huge population of before and after, both in a patient and then what we you know evolved ourselves. And we were able to compare and contrast the different changes that had occurred across these populations. We had like 
26 different uh, isolates, both in patients and out of patients, evolved ourselves. So very similar to the work that we're, we're doing with resistance bio with cancer. We, we actually kind of ran this process with, you know, cryonibacterium. And in doing so, I was able to identify specifically the lipid that this drug bound to, and then how it actually formed the, the killing mechanism, which is like these pores that were fairly large. And so I, I was able to prove all of that with biological samples and then with like the mechanistic work that I did in my PhD. And, and that actually only took us like less than four years. Wow. Yeah, we like sprinted through our PhDs, Chris and I. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> we, we knew we wanted to be uh, entrepreneurs. And so we were just like, what, what do we need to do to get here? You knew you wanted to be entrepreneurs when you started grad school. Yeah. I mean, originally I was like, I'm going to be a professor. And then we had like this. And then we had this summer of grants and we, we basically wrote like six or seven different grants. And I'm like, I do not want to write grants and beg for money. I want to start a company where I write grants and ask for money. <laughs> yeah so i basically like I, I showed up to grad school i was like hey i want to join your lab and then that following summer it was just like grants 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 wow um, <laughs> wow 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 and so welcome to grad school right <laughs> <laughs> well no people told me like yeah i never wrote a paper i never wrote a grant it was always the pi i just sat and like told got told what to do and in our lab it was very much like what do you want to do and uh, <laughs> i need you to write these grants um <laughs> and please write that paper <laughs> It's probably helpful to becoming an a entrepreneur at that, at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it taught me storytelling. It taught me project management. It talk, taught me what was required to like build a team. Because like a lot of the, the stuff, a lot of what made the PhD process so quick was we asked ourselves, do we want to learn this or do we want to find somebody who's already learned this? And so a lot of the stuff that we did basically just went to, to like, <laughs> I would just go to other like labs and be like, hey, have you done this before? Whereas most people are like, I'm going to talk to my PI and my PI is going to reach out to a, yeah, you know, somebody else and then yeah, we're going to yeah, do yeah. a collaboration. I was just like, no, I need, no, <laughs> I need to figure this out. <laughs> and so I would like just reach out to people and start these collaborations. When did you know in your research that there was actually a, a startup that you and Chris, your co-founder, like could actually like found something. Yeah. So my work was originally in the microbiome space. Uh, that's what the lab did. And so when Ubiome came through, we were like, we could do this so much better. They're only doing 16S sequencing. Like you need to do whole genome sequencing. You need to get like these metagenomes so that you can look at the pathways and do all this, you know, real analysis mm. on, on what's changing as a result of, you know, dietary changes or in this case, antibiotic, you know, perturbations. And so for us, this is kind of like uh, exactly what's happening with cancer is like, we just don't get enough data with the current diagnostic tests. Or when we're like doing real world data analysis, like we just don't have enough of the patient's actual tumor to really understand what's going on or how they're going to respond to a particular treatment. Mm. Same thing was happening with the gut. And so we were like, we're going to, we're going to do like... FMTs, so fecal microbiome transplants, and we're going to like send out kits to people's houses and they're going to give us a, a piece of their, you know, poop, send it back to us. And then we're going to have like a, a backup for, you know, when they go travel and there's like a, you know, perturbation, like if they have to take antibiotics or something like that. And so somebody was like, all right, so let me get this straight. You're going to send people a box and they're going to take a dump in the box and they're going <laughs> to send the box back to you and you're going to store it in a freezer and then they're going to travel and you're going to send them their own dump back in another box. And I was like, yeah. So they can eat it. <laughs> yeah. Basically, <laughs> as a pill so that they could reset their microbiome. And they're like, um, so, so you want them to uh, send you 
and then eat shit. So that, that idea didn't go very far. <laughs> and, and while this was kind of happening, there was a, a project in the lab that was going on around this uh, concept of collateral sensitivity, basically the idea that as a, a, an organism evolves resistance to a particular stressor, it necessarily becomes susceptible to another stressor. And so finding that kind of, you know, push-pull mechanism where, you know, no matter what happens, you're always in a susceptible state that you can actually drug. That was the the initiation of Viosera. I see. So you felt like at the time that you, there was this, this idea where you, you could unlock essentially the solution to antibiotic resistance with this idea. And, and, and so like then you... Did you at that point decide no more poop eating startup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we decided that you know, really the problem associated with antibiotics, uh, especially in today's market and how we're using them, requires us to reserve a lot of these new antibiotics on the shelves, right? You know, you make a brand new molecule, you're not going to be able to put it into a patient. So there's a couple of legislation pushes right now called the Pasteur Act, which would provide a bounty to uh, certain drug companies that actually got antibiotics approved. But, you know, without that, we're basically fighting against vancomycin. So we were like, all right, so if we if we start with, you know, a known quantity, if we start with known drugs, we don't have to worry about the stewardship issue because they're already used like in mass. What can we do with these compounds to address the resistance issue? And so we through this screen and we're basically uh, taking compounds that didn't work against MRSA as our negative control. And lo and behold, when you combine them all together, they actually worked better <laughs> than, than like anything else. And we're like, that's not, that's not real. Mm. <laughs> and so we, we basically did these like combination studies where we looked at, you know, doubles and triples, you know, uh, uh, and with different uh, drugs within these different classes of compounds to really see how robust this, this feature was. And what we found was in MRSA, you get collateral sensitivity. You, you can actually pin the organism in such a way that it doesn't respond. It, it just can't get out of this evolutionary trap um, when all these compounds are present at the same time. And so like in the back of your mind, is this research essentially like a slingshot to this company that like you want to leverage sort of your graduate research to do this foundational sort of burning down the scientific risk so that you can go start this this company in, in antibiotic resistance? Yeah. So actually the technology around the uh, antibiotic was developed by another person in our lab. His name is Pat Gonzalez. And, you know, he just didn't want to move it forward. He was much more interested in the clinical side of things. Mm. And so Chris and I like knew, understood the technology. It was, you know, getting ready to get patented. <laughs> WashU, our, our university is like, no, we're not going to patent it. And so I was like, all right, you know, we, we should just buy the patent from them and like do it ourselves. And then they're like, oh, okay, no, we'll actually patent this for you guys. <laughs> um, <Of course>. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, 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 they went through and they patented it. And uh, once the patent was filed, that was when we started the company. How much time had passed between sort of like when you knew you wanted to start this company to that moment where you actually started the company? Like, can I get a sense of the timeline? Yeah. So it was the summer of grants and then it was the fall <laughs> of starting a company. <laughs> <laughs> that quickly. So your second yeah. year, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like I, I had grown up, you know, in a very entrepreneurial family. We, my family owned small businesses. My mom uh, had an antique store. My dad had an office furniture store, you know, selling to other companies. And so like, you know, B2B sales, uh, you know, you know, B2C, you know, business to customer, like all of that was, was pretty well ingrained within, you know, what I was growing up with. 
And I think what I realized is I just wanted to do it on a bigger scale. You know, I wasn't, I didn't want to be an office furniture salesman. You know, I wanted to be a drug (laughs) (laughs) development company. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to do science on a, you know, at a global level. So this entire time you're doing grad school, like when, when you decided to start this company in the fall, you already sort of knew the shape of the company. Mm -hmm. Am I understanding that correctly? Like, I mean, it was like, we're going to use these compounds that have already been approved as antibiotics to solve antibiotic resistance through this new novel technique. Yeah, absolutely. And so originally the idea was, okay, we're, we're going to develop this platform around creating a whole bunch of these molecules, a mm. whole bunch of these kind of combinations in the antibiotic space. And, you know, then then the reality sets in and you're like, okay, we have a drug that's like ready for, you know, preclinical development, ready for IND, ready for, you know, phase one clinical trials. Do we spend money on platform development or do we spend it on getting it to that phase one clinical trial? And so, you know, we decided as a company to just do you know, the traditional kind of Boston route with uh, this. All all while this was happening, um, somebody had actually reached out to Chris and asked us if we wanted to do a, a different podcast, which I don't recommend you looking up or finding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and we, we you know had, that's just going to incentivize everyone to go yeah, look it up. And so we, we actually got uh, asked to do this other podcast. And so Chris and I did it. And the host, uh, uh, Lowell Thompson, basically posted it in Reddit and was like, hey, you know, if you're interested. And it just so happened that a whole bunch of YC partners were like in that same subreddit. Whoa. <laughs> Not even joking. Serendipity. And they, I know. And they were like, hey, um, this company sounds interesting. Like you should uh, connect us. And so we got connected because of this podcast to Adora Chung at, yep. at, uh, at YC. And she's like, yeah, this sounds interesting. You should talk to Diego Ray. And so we talked to Diego and he was like, yeah, this is definitely something that you should do. And the first time that we applied, we didn't get in, mostly due to like uh, just structural issues with the company, which we fixed uh, for the second round. But they were like, yep, just fix that and you're in. <laughs> and, and, like, and this entire time, you're still grad students. Still grad students. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and honestly, like, I'm really happy that we finished grad school before kind of jumping in. It, it just made it just so much easier when we started talking to like clinicians and, and other PhDs. It's one of those like fields where it's hard to do it without the credentials. And and when we were basically trying to raise money all through grad school, they're like, yeah, but you're not doctors. <laughs> like, wow. People okay. would actually give you that response. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, mostly mostly uh, uh, on the East Coast and the Midwest, but there, it's just a more conservative. So like you're actually literally leveraging your like grad student salary and time to just go start the foundations of this company and are actively fundraising throughout like most of grad school, like after the first year. I mean, uh, yeah. 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 We, we actually raised money while we were in grad school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The folks who didn't object to you not being doctors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was like, uh, so, so the, the first money in actually, so I, I took this, uh, biochem, uh, it was like this bio entrepreneurship course that was being put on at, at WashU. And I was like, I'm going to take that business school class because I was thinking about going to business school, you know, after I realized I didn't want to be in academia <laughs> anymore. And uh, one of the uh, speakers was an angel investor and he basically gave this presentation and how the class was structured. You give a presentation from like an actual entrepreneur or an investor and then the back half was like a case study. And so he's like, yeah, and I'm looking for new ideas. So if anybody's interested, you know, please reach out. 
And I was like, well, the case study isn't going to give me any money. So like, I'm not going to go to that half a class. And I left and I was like, hey, man, I got this really cool idea. Do you have time like next week to talk? And he's like, yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> and he was our first check in. One question we always sort of hear from from sort of academic folks who want to want to spin out is how they found their co-founders. Because a lot of them, you know, they're technical and, and they're just one person and, you know, they do realize they need a team. And so you and Chris, it sounds like have just been partners in crime this entire time. Like... <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yes. So basically, we met on the first day of grad school. I invited him to a barbecue. I actually like I was just inviting people. (laughs) He's not special. (laughs) And I invited him because it was like this like get together thing outside. And I was just like, you look taller. Um, (laughs) You look like you'd want to go to a barbecue. And so so I invited invited him and and we kind of hung out and it turns out that we had very similar interests. And and initially his his first idea was around some technology that he had developed at University of Vanderbilt. And it was around kind of like this microfluidics drug screening platform. We're like, all right, we'll, 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 you know, see if there's anything around that, but we couldn't get it patented. So we moved on to the poop idea. Um, (laughs) Yep. Yep. Love it. It's more, more relevant to what we were doing at the time. So we actually joined the exact same lab about the same time. We were working on the same project. He was doing more of the like the, the computational work, and I was doing much more of like the the wet wet lab biochemistry, which is exactly how we ended up doing stuff in the company. And so I work. I, we've basically been working with each other since like the first day of grad school, and. We've through the through Viacera, we've had to like develop international relationships with like manufacturers. Like we've flown to Europe, you know, we've done basically everything. It's been pretty pretty incredible. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you guys ever have like this this like we're gonna do this together moment, or was it just like since you just met and clicked, it was just like yeah, we just we're on this journey together. Let's just keep going. <laughs> He's not quitting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I. I think the first moment where we were like, all right, this is this is how we're going to do it was we were discussing who's going to be like the first, first author on one of our papers. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and we were like, all right, okay. So it makes sense to like flip a coin on this one <laughs> if we think that there's going to be like follow-on papers and like whoever gets like the first, first author on the first one, we had like two other papers planned. Mm. So like the other two papers would be like the other person gets first, first author. Yeah. Because there's, you know, risk that the third paper doesn't actually like you know, right. <laughs> get published. And so I was like, all right, like if you're cool with that, like we're just going to work together for a while. Let's just flip a coin. <laughs> he goes, all right. And so we flipped a coin and I got lucky and we didn't write the other two papers. <laughs> but he had other projects. To work <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, we've just kind of been been working on this ever since. It's just been a lot of a lot of fun. Things that we never thought that we would be able to do, we've been able to do together, which yeah, is just really, for sure. really cool. Did you have to negotiate? It sounded like you have to negotiate with the, the university on the patenting, but like, I assume you also had to negotiate with your PI. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the university, just to get the technology approved, you know, yeah. like just to get it, you know, patented and filed. And then there wasn't really much negotiating with our professor. It was just like, all right, we're going to, you know, do this, you know, in, a, in an equitable way, which is what we ended up doing. And then really just getting the technology into the company. They had this thing called the quick start license. It wasn't quick. (laughs) (laughs) We were negotiating things that we weren't like allowed to negotiate. (laughs) And so then we had to like renegotiate it. And uh, it was, it was a long process, but it ended up, you know, uh, working out. I've heard there's a conflict of interest and you're not allowed to negotiate with the university while you're still being paid by the university. How did you overcome that hurdle? So students weren't considered employees yet. Oh, interesting. So this was like that pre-rule 
schooling before like grad students were like told that they were employees and like that's when like you know students could like unionize so Got like, it. there wasn't an issue so i think like the the obvious next question right is uh, we we partnered with you on this bacterial vision right yes. and which is you know we always love the bacterial vision but completely see now how hard it is to like actually get it out into the world and so you actually have spun out a new company called resistance bio what triggered the realization that bio sarah's vision was not the right fit for you two and that you had to move on to this new company yeah vancomycin costs a nickel Okay. <laughs> uh, and, you know, unfortunately, and this is actually kind of one of the problems associated with, you know, reimbursement is as it stands, the DRG, uh, I don't know what that stands for, but it's basically the Medicare Medicaid reimbursement. You basically have the drug and the care combined into one reimbursement package. So if you go in with a MRSA infection to a hospital, the drugs that you're given for that infection are covered under the exact same reimbursement. But if you're a cancer patient, you're going to get treated for cancer and then your cancer therapies are going to get reimbursed completely separately. And so as a result of this, you're incentivized to give the cheapest drug first to maintain profitability for that infection rather than the best drug, which is oftentimes much more expensive. And so if you have a drug that's like $350 a day and your total compensation for that patient is like $9,000, you have to figure out how to make that work. And if you're giving a patient a $7,000 you know, course of drug, you now have to give them only $2,000 worth of care, <laughs> which you can't do, you know, and so it, it disincentivizes. How, how do we get past that problem, right? Who do we talk to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so there's this thing called the Pasteur Act that's coming out. Basically, it, it doesn't solve the problem of changing that, you know, separation of the the DRG of the, of, of the infection versus the antibiotic. But what it does is it provides a bounty for, for those patients, for those companies that actually develop an FDA approved antibiotic. And so that, at least in the current uh, iteration of the legislation, is between $700 million and $3 billion. And so if you get an approved drug, you get that basically pot of money up front, which would cover your you know, potential market so that you can then sell the drug at like a nickel and compete with vancomycin based on the cost of actually manufacturing the product. Interesting. So tell us more about this process of shifting, right? So you, you, know, you had to start up a new company while leading Viosera. What happened to Viosera and, and what were the challenges associated with that shift? Yeah, so, so Viosera uh, is uh, transitioning into a cystic fibrosis focused anti-infective company, mostly because this is the one area of anti-infectives where the uh, reimbursement is, is separated. So you can charge appropriately for a life-saving therapy. Was it hard to, to make this shift? I mean, yeah. like, yeah, like for like <laughs> however many years in grad school, plus all that right. spin out time after you're telling everybody, hey, we're going to work on this problem of antibiotic resistance and then deciding one day like, nope, like we're going to go some do something else like this doesn't actually work. So I think it's less of a transition than I think a lot of people might realize. So I've always kind of viewed cancer as like a really complicated yeast infection. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's host versus, you know, like yeah. your body is trying to get rid of this cancer in some way. Sure. The immunology uh, is very similar too, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so, so from, from that kind of perspective, we've always looked at cancer as like the, the, the future direction that we wanted to go to. And we were just like, all right, we're going to get this antibiotic done first and then shift mm. over into the uh, cancer. Mm. 
And we tried telling that story originally, but it's just very difficult to get people to go from, oh, yeah, we're a cystic fibrosis or at the very beginning, a bloodstream MRSA infection company. And, oh, we have this cool, like, you know, non-small cell lung cancer asset. It's kind of it's kind of whiplash. And so we really wanted to focus these companies on the indications that they were going to be going after, even though both of them are unified by this kind of resistance angle. And the platform and the technology is very similar across both companies. It's just a different, you know, starting sell. So in a few sentences, you know, what is Resistance Bio aiming to do and, and how is that a shift over from what you were originally kind of working on? Yeah. So originally we were working on uh, combining, you know, approved assets together to create novel efficacy, you know, basically taking, un- taking known compounds and getting unknown outputs out of them. And with Resistance Bio, we're really focusing on taking cancer and watching it adapt to therapeutics over time, and then identifying susceptibilities that arise as a result of that adaptation. So these are like novel targets, you know, novel compounds that prevent or inhibit that uh, resistance from occurring to enable like much longer durable outcomes for these, these patients. And what's cool about this process is that we also get like biomarkers, resistance, so we could say, you know, this patient, not that patient or, you know, this patient for this long or, you know, that general stratification that you just can't do right now. So even though they're very different types of cells, right, the the root cause of resistance is very similar between the two. Can you, can you kind of describe the connections between them? Yeah, absolutely. So basically what you're doing is you're taking a, a chemical and you're applying it to a cell and saying die or survive. And they have a bunch of different uh, biochemical processes that are very similar in terms of just changing the targets, preventing the drug from actually reaching the target through either efflux pumps or sequestering the drug in, in certain pockets in the case of cancer cells, routing it to lysosomes so that they degrade the, the drug. And, and all of these kind of resistance mechanisms are very similar to like uh, simple machines. You know, they're, they're very similar across both systems. It's just the, the complexity of the system can change. So you have to worry about epigenetics and post-translational modification and splice variants and all that stuff in cancer. Don't have to worry about that in, in bacteria, but the mechanisms are basically the same. So what made resistance so hard to look at in cancer before there was you guys? So it really, it's the the methods of understanding resistance and trying to identify these resistance mechanisms. So the most traditional method of uh, trying to get a resistant population is you take a, a cell a cell line, put it in a petri dish, petri dish or a flask, and then you add drugs starting at what's called the inhibitory concentration 50. So it's the amount of drug that would inhibit like 50% of the cell's growth. And over the course of like six months to a year, you would slowly increase the amount of drug that you would give to these cells and you would passage the cells from dish to dish to dish. And every time you did that, you would lose a population of those cells. So you, you basically were picking a lucky population that was also potentially resistant to that therapeutic. And so because of that non-therapeutic selection event, that, that population bottleneck, every time you finish the experiment after that six months to a year, the population was different. You know, so if you if you started, did this in triplicate, you wouldn't get the same results at the end. And so this kind of led itself to the idea that resistance associated with cancer is divergent. So it becomes very disparate. There's not very many unifying factors associated with a particular resistance mechanism or a particular therapy. And it's also because of the molecules that we were using. So chemo at the the onset was very much just chop up a bunch of DNA and you know <laughs> cause problems in, in a very random in a very random way. 
Whereas now with targeted therapy, you get much more focus on what the molecule hits. It still has off-target effects, which we actually rely on for you know, non-canonical interactions that enable uh, resistance inhibition, but they're far fewer than the traditional kind of chemotherapeutics. The other method that people have been using is CRISPR. I'm basically making CRISPR-based libraries where you apply a library to you know, a population, you knock out a bunch of different genes, sometimes single genes, sometimes you know, double, and you just see what survives a selection event. And essentially what doesn't survive is susceptible and what does survive is, is resistant. And the problem with that setup is that it creates an artificial selection event yet again. You're basically preferentially knocking out genes. And those genes may or may not actually be knocked out or changed in a patient uh, under that same selection pressure. It might do something different. It might you know, do a post-translational modification. It might do a you know, epigenetic change. But instead, we're, we're just knocking out a gene and just removing it from the, from the cell and then saying, okay, this is, this is useful. And in the reality is there's just a lot of noise and there's a question of the translatability to um, an actual patient. And so what we've done is we've done a non-genomic approach to this. We remove basically any passaging whatsoever, and we try to get the, the cell population to be in as biomimetic a situation as possible. So like, you know, human serum, cancer time, you know, we're not staying, we're not creating these cultures for, for seven days or nine days. We're, we're letting these cells experience drug in a way that they would experience drug in a patient. So like, you know, PK troughs, things like that, and gradients over the course of months and months and months. So this isn't like an ex vivo diagnostic tool. This is really mapping what we need to care about, uh, what targets are important, you know, what biomarkers are associated with change over time. And then you can use those for future patients. So, you know, I've been working in the cancer field for, for a while now. And when you told me that you could not actually move cells from one dish to another, I still not 100% sure how like that's possible, how, you know, kind of <laughs> rescue. How did, and, you know, yeah. So you've built out rescue and it uses something very different than kind of the more traditional 2D cultures or as you described some of these knockouts. Can you tell me what rescue like at, at its core is? Yeah, it's a chamber. So it's a process with a chamber. Mm -hmm. And so this chamber is basically seated uh, at the very beginning. And so so we have an algorithm that allows us to determine that starting population, cool. which allows us to culture these cells for, for very, very long times because they're it, it's the right starting population plus drug selection plus time. And so what we do is we try to determine the minimum population size to cover the maximum molecular diversity. And so I say molecular diversity, not genetic diversity, very specifically because we're, we're trying to capture all the potential changes. So we might have you know, 15 or 20 cells that have the same genetic background, but they have different changes within, um, within the cells themselves, the, the, the phase or an epigenetic change or something along those lines. So we start with that population, we put it in the, the kind of cassette, and then we use drug over time to modulate that population in a way that is consistent with patient care. And we use the first kind of portion of the die-off period uh, as the kind of progression-free survival mm -hmm. predictor portion. So basically, mm. you have a population, it's going to die off after a period of time. And once it starts to grow again, that's when we know the population that's left is resistant. And what we do is we let that population grow for a very, very long time after it has become resistant so that we can really mimic the population level changes that are happening and see how individual populations are actually helping or hurting the rest of that tumor 
type, if you will. Right. And it's super important, right? Because in a real tumor and how you're, you know, mimicking it in rescue, you know, a tumor is actually very, very heterogeneous, right? There's multiple populations existing at the same time. Can you tell us a bit about how that, you know, is created and why that happens? Basically, uh, at a very early stage, these cells become they have these rearrangement events. Mm-hmm. And so the, the population of cells at the very beginning of the primary tumor are already somewhat diverse. Mm-hmm. And then over time, as the tumor grows and as it's affected by where it is physically in the body, it's going to have different changes that occur. So if you have like, a, for instance, a gastric tumor, the evolutionary pressures of that gastric tumor are different depending on where it is. So if it's closer to different organ systems, those signaling factors in that microenvironment are going to affect the outcome differently than the other part of the tumor uh, at a distal part within that same kind of primary tumors. Yeah. Whoa. And so all of that uh, affects how the tumor evolves. And then you add in treatment. Um, in many cases, if you don't have targeted therapy, you're given like radiation or chemo. And those necessarily introduce just a ton of random mutations and variations because the idea is to mess up the DNA so much that the cells just die. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, some cells are like, okay, cool, I messed up. Now I get to grow faster uh, (laughs) and I get to go wherever I want. Like cancer's Um, a master. You know, your regular cells are actually probably the ones getting more hurt in many of the cases than the cancer cells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And actually, that's one of the- Cancer is Spider-Man. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Just get bit by a radioactive spider. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's totally- Totally like, and it's actually kind of interesting because one of our our, our new recent hires, Virus, he's a microfluidics engineer at the University of Toledo, and he's built this system that allows us to actually check what's happening to the healthy tissue on the outside of the tumor and the cancer itself. So Mm -hmm. when we flow drug over these systems, we can actually see whether or not we're degrading that membrane that would prevent metastasis from occurring and actually enabling it to occur based on how the drugs affect the healthy tissue. And so we know, for instance, that metastasis is one of the resistance mechanisms that's actually very common. So like EMT, epithelial to mesenchymal transition is one of these kind of events where they'll get stuck in this hybrid state where they're not epithelial, they're not mesenchymal, they're they're somewhere in between. They're not dividing, so they're in this kind of senescence state, but they're very motile. And so they're not affected by traditional chemotherapy, which requires division because they're not dividing. And they're chemosensing, so they're trying to figure out where the drug is. Mm. And then they metastasize to parts of the body where there's less drug, which is why you see things like brain metastases, drugs just don't get there. That's why you see, you know, liver metastases or, or, or like kidney metastases because there the drug is either getting broken down and so the therapeutic concentration is lower there yeah. and, the, and the cancer can actually then live there. Sneaky, and, sneaky. <laughs> right? Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's very sneaky, but it's also um, from like a biological perspective, very elegant, right? right? Yeah. They're going to the area where the drug is getting broken down and because they're there, they're in a lower concentration of drug and they can actually become resistant to that therapy in a much more profound way than the primary tumor, which is why sometimes the metastases are actually much harder to treat than the primary. So you have like, there's all these crazy mechanisms and you're just going in and saying, we aren't going to be messing with it ourselves. We're just going to let the tumor kind of grow in the way it would in the body. Right. And so to do that, you, you leverage this thing called an organoid, right? Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us about an organoid and why it's much better than for especially for the rescue system than kind of 2D cultures? Yeah. So what we've what we're doing is we're calling tumoroids. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean because like an organoid, uh, it, it it implies that it's like a healthy tissue, right? Um, and so these tumoroids are, are very much you know cancerous and uh, <laughs> they're a tumor. <laughs> you need to single them out. Any yeah, opportunity. Right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, so so part of this, you know, the future direction of this is we actually want to be able to evolve these resistance mechanisms 
systems uh, to healthy tissues as well. So we can use this as a zeroing out for future like uh, immune oncology work where we're mm -hmm. looking for like neoantigen mm -hmm. presentation. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have a component that is like the healthy organoid tissue mm -hmm. um, from a pair match patient. So we can actually see how things change across multiple tissue types. Right now we're, 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 we're focused on the tumoroid, trying to incorporate you know immune components and, and really the, the benefit of this uh, three-dimensional structure is that it is three-dimensional. So you actually get PK-like uh, events. So there's a gradient of drug. The cells on the outside are, are, are seeing the drug at a different concentration than the cells on the inside. And then you can also mimic uh, or modify the environment. So you can put these organoids in different, you know, media environments to mimic some of this uh, similar similarly. So a tumoroid is basically this mini tumor growing outside the body. Yes. And they come from patients, correct? Yes. So the, these are these are coming from patients. We can also from do... From a biopsy or like, do they have to biopsy different parts of a tumor to get like, to make a tumoroid? <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. 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 So so with this, we're working uh, with non-small cell lung cancer. Basically, they go in with a, a needle and they get these like punch biopsies. And so they get like six or seven punches and they just kind of stab the, the tumor a bunch of times. I don't ever want to be involved in that procedure or have it done to me. But, but that's that, that's what happens. We, we basically get healthy tissue as well as the tumor itself. And then we also get blood samples so that we can pair match basically everything from the immune component to the serum to everything. And we have a way of basically culturing this system for a very, very long time so that we can then go back and re-interrogate uh, the same patient with multiple different drugs. So if you have novel compounds, you can, you know, five years from now, you can test it against this patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, if you have currently effective drugs, same thing. So you went from a, a really amazing technology and a really difficult market to, to a really amazing technology and a really hot market, right? How do you kind of leverage this technology in order to create new therapeutic assets and overcome, you know, some cancer resistance? The rescue system is designed to search for evolutionary outcomes to a given selection pressure, which with the ultimate goal of finding a cancer is like Achilles heel. Uh, in this case, what we're trying to figure out is what cancer cells survive after drug treatment, how exactly do the cancer cells do it, and what new weaknesses do they have that we can exploit. The information from these searches actually gives us novel resistance biomarkers and resistance target networks that are then converted into uh, patient stratification diagnostics uh, and therapeutics. And so you can think about the rescue system very much like a Google search engine. So what we've done is essentially converted cancer cells into biological bots or cancer crawlers. And under a specific drug selection or a resistance search, these cancer crawlers make adaptations at every level of molecular regulation, and they crawl through potential resistance networks trying to identify a successful resistance solution. Now, these resistance crawlers um, are the ones that basically have gone through and made ad adaptations that allow them uh, to, to survive. In contrast, all the other crawlers that uh, haven't made these changes die so that only what's left behind is those successful resistance solutions held within those cancer crawlers. We then read the resistant crawlers by doing deep single cell analysis and comparing them back to that naive crawler so that we can understand what's changed and establish what we're calling a resistance rank of the essential resistance mechanisms. And so this rank is really based on how often the resistance mechanism shows up in a resistant crawler population and how connected that target mechanism is with the other biological processes that are required for life and for survival. And so this ranking really provides the basis for patient stratification uh, signatures as well as novel targets with the highest likelihood of extending patients' lives when you give all of these uh, uh, drugs in combination 
with a given innovator compound. And so when we work with partners in the past, they'll typically start with like their drug uh, and a target that they know that their drug goes after, as well as an initial cancer type, just to see how effective their compound is over time. And so we run their lead compound or a panel of their compounds through the rescue system across multiple cancer backgrounds to help them determine which patient population will respond best to their compound over months and not develop resistance. And that's the key thing here. What we're really looking for is what is that long-term resistance potential? Your therapeutic partners must be stoked to see you, right? Like I'm sure a lot of these drugs end up tanking essentially in the market, not because they aren't (laughs) effective, but just because like they're so easy to create resistance to. Yeah. I mean, a a great example of this is uh, Amgen's KRAS drug. Like it has really great activity. Uh, I mean, so first off, it's a really good drug. Got really great activity in KRAS, G12C positive, uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients. Like people are actually like their tumors are, are going away. It's not having the same efficacy in colorectal cancer. And this is actually one of the really interesting things. It has the exact same driver, but because of the tissue background, the efficacy of the same compound is completely different. They're only getting like a twofold increase in progression-free survival from about like two months to four months, um, if I remember the, the study correctly. And the question is why, like the target is clearly there, but the tumor is not responding. And so what we're really good at is figuring out the non-genomic resistance mechanisms so that you can develop therapies that activate that initial innovator compound or prevent that resistance from occurring so that the innovator compound compound from the beginning is effective. And, and so we have a few uh, partnerships around that. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. I'm so excited. That's so crazy. Every time I see your data, I get like just antsy <laughs> to come join on. So, you know, <laughs> how does, uh, how do uh, you know, as you're talking about that, right, you're, you're just, uh, you essentially just say like, we're, we're seeing the, mo- the molecular pieces, right? How does multi-omics kind of play into that site, quote unquote? So, Multiomics plays a big, big part of this because resistance is so multifactorial. If we just focus on bulk and if we just focus on DNA or transcriptomics, we're missing out on a lot of the context. Mm. And so what we've done is we've looked at bulk and single cell sequencing so that we can get both population level changes as well as the, the general trends. And in addition to just like whole exome sequencing at the single cell level, we're also doing transcriptomics. We're also doing proteomics. We're also doing attack seek on the same populations and that would also include like the immune component as well, which would you know also involve surface marker analysis. And so we're really trying to capture as much data as humanly possible from the same pair matched tissues and the same populations, either before and after treatments, so that we know what changes and how those changes track across different samples, so that we can identify the converging resistance mechanisms for a particular therapy. Okay. And I just, I mean, um, that's such a crazy answer. I mean, is this the answer to why, like, why now, essentially, like? you know, five, 10 years ago, it was too expensive to get all this data. But now it's like, yeah, we, we can get all this data and we can parse it. And so we can design better drugs. Some some days I wish I started this two years ago, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. Uh, but like 10X just got cheap enough. Right. Compute yeah. just got good enough. Yeah. I, totally I, I mean, like, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of technical advances that like only now does this make sense. And, and like the technology for patient, for primary tissue immortalization and manipulation is finally like available. It's, mm-hmm. it's like reasonable to make organoids or tumoroids in a fairly cheap way. Like all of this technology that was required for this platform basically is just coming out now. Mm. Um, and so this is, this is like the perfect time to do it because we can do it. So seizing this moment, right, you were able to kind of 
you know, rescue TM, uh, a, a, a small molecule, the, the workhorse of pharma that was kind of already out there. You were able to show that you could uh, overcome the resistance that that you're seeing in actual populations. You know, what were you able to show here and, and how did you discover it? Yeah. So initially we were looking at like CDK4-6 uh, inhibitors. This is a common molecule for breast cancer patients. And so we wanted to know whether or not our system was one, predictive, and two, if it could expand the potential of a given molecule. And so CDK4-6 inhibitors, they have a bunch of different resistance mechanisms, but none of them are actually translatable. So RB1 deletions, for instance, are canonically associated with uh, treatment non-susceptibility or treatment resistance, but it's not a biomarker for like clinical determination because you can still have the RB1 deletion in a subset of patients and, and respond to CDK4-6 inhibitors. And so what we wanted to do is understand, you know, one, what is the, the breadth of resistance to this molecule uh, across different tissue types? And two, what are ways that we can enhance the efficacy of this molecule? And so we took CDK4-6 inhibitor and we applied it to non-small cell lung cancer, which is not a traditional application for this molecule. And we found that we could actually get uh, activity in RB1 <laughs> negative uh, cell backgrounds, uh, which again kind of puts another nail in the coffin <laughs> that maybe that by itself is not the best biomarker of resistance. And then the second thing that we did was we evolved uh, a bunch of uh, different uh, cell populations with different backgrounds over several months. Uh, and then we did a basically a sequencing of those populations, as well as a drug screen to look at differential phenotypic resistance or susceptibility changes. And what we found were very consistent changes, um, both in the phenotypic resistance profile, uh, as well as uh, in the, the actual sequencing data. And so we picked, a, picked drugs that we could at least get our hands on and targets that we knew were targetable. And so we identified a synergistic combination with CDK4-6 and another compound, and we're able to show that one, we got synergy, uh, actual synergy in a subset of the cell populations, but we got wildly different results, either additive results or antagonistic results in different backgrounds, depending on all in non-small cell lung cancer. And so what that actually allowed us to do was identify the resistance mechanisms that were associated with the individual compounds and the resistance mechanisms that were associated with the combination as well. And what we found was that while we were able to extend progression-free survival with the synthetic lethal combination, we weren't actually able to extend overall survival uh, in the context of like, does, are, are the cells still around? You know, overall survival progression-free survival or, or clinical terms, you know, not necessarily applicable for cell culture, but basically when did the cells stop responding to therapy? And so we identified this synergistic combination and then we did again the rescue system and uh, evolved resistance to it, created a map of that resistance and then identified a third component that would inhibit the resistance, so a, a three compound product. We were really worried about toxicity. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, it, it still might be an issue. But uh, we we then decided, okay, if if we really believe that this this triple works uh, and that the targets that we are able to identify for this kind of resistance inhibition, we, we really need to test this in a mouse. And so like the first like 30 days, I was like sweating bullets. Um, <laughs> the, the synthetic lethal combination and the resistance inhibitor plus synthetic lethal combination were like neck and neck. And I'm like, oh man, like this isn't real. <laughs> and then at like day 24, like the, the synthetic lethal combination actually like dipped below the... <laughs> 
<laughs> with the inhibitor and I'm like no let's close shop it's over yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna work oh, no. but like any good uh, good story that was just like the low point uh, and basically we we did this mouse study for 90 days which isn't typical we gave them drug for 90 days which again isn't typical and during this time on day 24 the synthetic lethal combination broke um, so every single day that we test that we checked after that the tumors were growing um, some of the the mice actually passed away from the tumors getting too big wow. and so that at the end of the uh, the study at the end of 90 days it was actually no better than the standard of care and and this is actually a really big problem with synthetic lethality and kind of trying to identify these synergistic combinations because you're essentially saying okay this drug by itself doesn't work and this drug by itself doesn't work. And in order for it to work, we need like 10 times drug A and five times drug B. But together, for some reason, you know, we get one of A, one of B, and it works. As soon as the cancer becomes like 10% resistant to like one of the compounds, you can't actually give a therapeutic dose to that particular patient. Mm -hmm. And so now you're above the therapeutic index and the tumor just starts to evolve resistance. And it becomes, it's basically, you now need 10 of A and five of B. And if you don't have that, the cancer is just going to plow through it uh, and become resistant much quicker because now you're at a sub-therapeutic dose already. And depending on how large the tumor is, if there isn't enough vasculature in that tumor, <laughs> the interior of that tumor is already resistant. Mm. Uh, so when you remove the susceptible portion of the tumor, what's left is that resistant core, which has seen the drug, but not at the concentration where it was actually effective. I can't describe how crazy that is still. Like, I, I just still am so, so, so impressed because it's, you know, I think the traditional way to have found those synergistics would have essentially to just be trying, you know, end by end combinations in a mouse and hoping to God you find exactly what you found, <laughs> right? But like, you literally predict, like pulled it out of data. And I, and I think that's just a, it, I haven't seen it yet. I think it's just really, really amazing. But your vision actually doesn't stop there, right? The small molecule piece is really exciting and, and very, you know, presently important, but this could also extend to biologics and, you know, maybe my bias here, but my, my favorite <laughs> immunotherapies. Uh, so how are you kind of planning in the future to leverage rescue to find these kinds of drugs? Yeah. So that's why we're, we're really going into the ex vivo system, which is patient derived pair match samples. We're going pair matched to like to the nth degree, like we're collecting their blood for like tissue culture, like mm. everything. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because we want to make sure that we're providing the same signals that the patient actually is going to be, be seeing. And what we found is that there are a lot of small variations that aren't captured in traditional cell culture. Like one glaring incidence is like fetal bovine calf serum. Mm -hmm. None of us on the face of planet Earth have that running through our veins. So, so sorry, just to interject right here, like this is something that's a core component yeah. of media. Correct? This is yeah, this is a core component of media uh, in cell culture. Like everybody who's done cell culture knows this reagent mm -hmm. because it's what keeps cells alive. It's actually what keeps cells flat on a dish. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we just don't have that in our in our in our human body. And so why would we expect the cells uh, in that environment to behave like they're behaving in? in a human and they don't. <laughs> and so we, we, we basically looked through all these assumptions and tried to remove anything that's not biomimetic to an actual human. And that includes the immune system and the three-dimensional structures that are really important for that immune response. And so what we're trying to do is pair match it so you have an autogenic you know, tumor plus the immune component plus the microenvironment. And that helps us mimic what the immune response is, is likely going to be for uh, a particular immunotherapy or a small molecule therapy. And what's really cool is that over 
time, when you evolve these uh, these these tumoroids, what's happening, depending on the therapy that you use to make that that selection, you're creating neoantigens specifically to that tumor stressor, so that that molecule. And with targeted therapy, unlike uh, chemotherapy, which is just making like random neoantigens and creating like a, a huge amount of diversity that the body may or may not be able to handle. Like, I mean, just just think about this. You're you're causing tons and tons of variation and you're telling the immune system which is very very specific you know mm-hmm. to now make up for that diversity that you've created with with chemo or with radiation and so our our focus is on taking targeted therapies for neoantigen expression um, because they have a much narrower response and they actually create uh, a convergence rather than divergence which enables us to identify specific neoantigens that are only expressed under certain conditions with a particular patient background so that you can provide you know, new immuno-oncology therapies, either antibodies or, or CARs or, or ADCs that are now targeting specifically the tumor that's resistant to a particular uh, targeted therapy that's kind of homogenized the tumor because of that consistent evolutionary pressure. Absolutely love it. That's wild. That's wild. I mean, is one summary of what you guys do essentially that you grow like a wall of cancerous evil <laughs> powered by your patient's blood... <laughs> to enter in data into a compute platform to destroy cancer everywhere. Yeah, I'd like to do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, look, the system, the system works regardless of the therapeutic modality. We've focused on non-small cell lung cancer because there's just so many cancer types, but it, it really does work regardless of the cancer type. You know, there are technical barriers that we need to overcome with, you know, creating like blood-brain barriers to mimic that kind mm-hmm. of response. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, uh, pancreatic cancer is notoriously difficult because in many cases, like only 10% of the cancer is actually like, uh, the, of the tumor is actually cancer. Like the rest of its microenvironment, how do you kind of parse that out. But this this works uh, across cancer types uh, and it works regardless of that therapeutic modality. Wow. And so if any of those problems sound interesting to any of our listeners out there, <laughs> yeah. make up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like one of the, what actually, one of the big challenges, right, is most of these therapies are going in third line. So these patients that they're seeing have seen like several rounds of chemo. Mm. And so the tumor type that they're actually trying to treat isn't the tumor type that they did all their uh, discovery on. And so one of the things that we're doing internally for our own development and what we'd like to help with uh, other partners is creating those model systems for that real discovery and uh, um, testing. Because you're not going into a naive patient, you're going into a patient that's seen a couple Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. And if you're not starting with that as your uh, initial kind of testing point, you're not actually testing what your drug is going be doing in a, in a patient population. We love that though, because you could start eventually pushing the needle on that one, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, I can imagine a future in which it would be ridiculous to ever, you know, I guess, start prescribing drugs until you kind of know like the, the biomarkers and stuff that have been identified through rescue, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that because there's just so many applications, literally any, any drug, yeah, um, right. you know, it's long-term vision is, is really to just be a, an integrated part of the drug discovery process because it's so predictive and it's just easy to use. Not only did you change companies, but you recently also changed locations and moved to the Bay Area. Why did you make this move and how do you feel about it so far? So I have, so I'm from Wisconsin originally and it's, it's a very purple state. And so when I was growing up, uh, I was more in the rural area 
And I was like, I'm never moving to California. Like, that's just too, there's too many taxes. It's too happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not moving to California. It's never going to happen. Nor am I going to move to New York. You know, I'm going to stay in the Midwest. (laughs) That's what I did with grad school, actually. (laughs) I went to Wash U. And when we came out here for, for Y Combinator, it was kind of like this, like shock moment where it's like, oh my God, there's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, you know, Mm. there's Genentech. There's like all of these companies, like this is where it's happening. And I realized that I was missing a lot of the, I I was missing a lot of the opportunities in St. Louis because it's, it's a really great place from an academic standpoint. It's got a Mm -hmm. great magnet uh, location, the cost of housing. You could buy a house as a grad student. And I did. Um, (laughs) Can't do that here. Um, You know, so there's a lot of, a lot of good things about St. Louis from just like a, I want to live in like a, and, and be happy kind of perspective. But if you really want to do something big, you, it, you just can't do it there. What are the opportunities specifically that you're missing out on or we're missing out on? Fundraising and people and, and also mindset. So one of the VCs that we talked to in St. Louis, he goes, you know, Nick in the Bay, if you exit your company, you start a VC fund in St. Louis. If you exit your company, you're picking out which granite you want you know, <laughs> in your house in, in Ladue. And I was like, I, I want to start a VC company <laughs> and I want to have a house where I have granite. You know, like, I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to pick, uh, you know, I, I could just go to where, where it's happening. And, and I think really what kind of let it, let us, you know, move out here was we got in this partnership and we need to hire people really quickly. And the hiring process before was just, it just took too long. In like three months, we got 30 applications and the people that we reached out to, they're like, we're not moving to St. Louis. <laughs> um, and so it was just really hard to recruit there. And we even reached out to some like the local people and we're like, hey, is this a problem? They're like, no, it's not a problem. Actually, it's our biggest problem. <laughs> cool. So we need to go where, where, where the talent is and, and where the, the capital is and, you know, where the hospital systems are really like geared for this kind of research because mm. you know in Boston obviously it's a it's a great place for biotech companies there's just so much competition with the hospital systems and the universities themselves mm-hmm. um, that it's difficult for a company to kind of get in and, and get the types of samples that we we need as a company so you have this platform that can find a multitude of different types of drugs that can cure cancer you can literally save therapeutic programs and millions of lives by using rescue to predict perfect drug combinations and overcome that overcome these resistances. How do you get these assets into the world? Are you focusing on developing your favorites or do you have a, a kind of different strategy there? Yeah, I think Genentech did a really good job of this. They obviously partnered on their first compound and then they had Herceptin. Um, which, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and, and so I think, uh, you know, as a part of this, one of the great things about our platform is that target identification is it's not constrained to the traditional like cancer pathways. And so the number of new targets that we're able to identify, we, we really don't have enough partners to like go after them all. And well, so for us, it's it's exciting to, to partner with companies uh, around these novel targets, around their own assets and like biomarker discoveries, like which patients should they go after? And all of this data feeds into our own system. So it enables us to uh, develop our own therapies, you know, later on. We have a few that we're thinking of targeting. Um, we're, we're looking at a few different modalities for it. And so we want to move forward with our own programs. It just, it, it seems like it would benefit, you know, both the, the the cancer community and us to just get as much data as possible across these cancer types. And so partnering and building is, is really the model that we're going after. I absolutely love, we, we talk about a lot, the, the build it and they will come model, <laughs> I think is a, a brilliant, especially for startups, right? So you don't have to, you know, kind of 
risk it all on a single asset, like I think traditional biopharma does, but you still get a lot of the upside of the, the data analysis and the know-how and everything until you're you can kind of mature enough to create your own asset. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it just provides a lot of learning too. You know, the, the more partnerships that we've been able to kind of cultivate, we get to hear about the problems that they're facing, either mm. from a clinical standpoint or from a preclinical standpoint, from a market access standpoint. Basically, all along the way, we're, we're learning from our partners and, and we're helping them uh, design better trials design better therapeutics and, and ultimately, you know, saving more patients. I love it. I love it. So so really dig deep on this one and, and find your most optimistic self when answering this question. Imagine it's 10 years from now and everything has just gone perfectly. What does resistance bio look like and what have you accomplished? I think if everything goes perfectly, resistance bio 10 years from now is, you know, a 50 billion to a hundred billion dollar company we're working across basically every every cancer type from brain cancer through to you know osteosarcomas you know to breast cancer to lung cancer we've really built out the platform to be pan cancer and we're working with you know academic institutions across the country across the world we're working with the top 20 big pharma companies with their pipelines and we have you know <laughs> too many uh, smaller uh, biotech companies uh, <laughs> that we know what to do with, you know, asking for these, uh, asking for access to our platform. I think that this technology enables a lot of new companies to build on top of our system. You know, uh, it provides them novel targets that they necessarily wouldn't have access to. And it provides them a output that happens preclinically that they typically don't get to see until like they're in the clinic and they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars and they've got one shot and they're Stock price goes from, you know, $12 a share to $2 a share on the release of some data. You know, we can help them with that. Well, Nick, thank you so much. I'm super, super inspired every day by, by what you're building. And I can't wait to see that future. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, too. It's, it's, it's tough, but it's going to happen. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Translation. If you're an author of an upcoming paper in bio or know of any interesting papers dropping soon and want to hear from the authors, send us an email to translation at 50.vc. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, good bio.